Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible with you today, can you turn with me again to the letter of James or the part of the letter we're going to study together today is on page 9. I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, Lord God, to move by your spirit in our hearts now as we hear this and transform us in ways we can't even really imagine. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I want to start today with a fact of life. You'll all recognize it immediately. This is one of those facts of life. You never have to sort of like get people to figure out what you're talking about. And that fact of life is suffering. You all know immediately what I'm talking about when I talk about suffering. Nobody escapes it in this world. For some of us, it will be pain. Some of us, it will be trauma. Some of us will have losses or disappointments. For some of us, it'll just be a more general sense of emptiness, maybe even a sense of kind of futility, whatever it is, but you will suffer. The, the world is full of suffering. You, you know, people can inflate it. They can magnify it in a way that's unrealistic. We, you know, we hear people do that. You know, they're just all about their problems. Or you can minimize it unrealistically. But if you're going to be a realist about life, you've got to talk about suffering. And then there's Christian suffering. You know, there's just suffering that everyone experiences. And there's suffering that's somewhat distinctive to Christians, because there's a strange thing about Jesus and following Jesus. Jesus came into this world to relieve misery, to relieve suffering, but he came to do something about the root cause of misery, the root cause of suffering, and that is sin. And that really didn't make him a lot of friends, as you know. It's a curious thing. Jesus went about doing good. He went about relieving people. He went about touching their misery, and he ended up getting killed for it. He ended up being opposed Because there's a strange thing about us as human beings. We want God to relieve our suffering and leave us in charge. That's what I want. I want a good life with Ben on the throne. And Jesus challenged the sovereignty of sinners, and it didn't go well. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer like Jesus suffered. That is to say, as you testify about his kingdom, and you do the good works of his kingdom, and you're even very good to people and merciful to them and kind to them, it's all fine and well until you start talking about sin, and then you're going to experience opposition. That's another kind of suffering. But it won't just be suffering opposition from out there. You'll discover your own heart will give you trouble. Your own, you'll have opposition within. 
There are temptations. Sometimes the reality is, I know Jesus is Lord, and I still want to do my own thing. I worship the true God, and I still want to do my own thing. My own heart fights me. There's a lot of this, there's a lot to all of this, these various kinds of suffering. And James, you know, at the very beginning of this chapter, he said something kind of crazy to us. He said, I want you to count all this suffering joy. I mean, that sounds like madness. All the pain, all the trauma, all the opposition, all the temptations. I want you to count this joy. I want you to be joyful about this. You say, how is that even possible, James? And as he's unpacked that crazy idea in this first chapter, the reason why he can say we should count it all joy when you fall into various crucibles, various trials, very simply, the reason we can count it all joy is because God is our Father. Because God is our Father. And what that means, as we've been unpacking this, is that every moment of our lives is shaped by two great fatherly realities. One we've already talked about, the other we're going to talk about today. One fatherly reality that we are constantly living in, our lives are constantly shaped by, is creation. And the other is, we're going to talk about this in verses 19 through 21 today, the other is there's a commission from our Father. We are creatures of our Father and we're also commissioned by our Father. I just want to back up to verses 16 through 18. So look at your text, verses 16 through 18. God is our Father, and the first thing that means is that our life is shaped by, by His creation. Because this God that you and I call Father, you'll notice James starts talking about Him in verse 17. This God that we call Father is not a God. He is not one more fabricated deity that we human beings have made up from below in this thing humans call religion. Religion is human beings trying to build a way to God from below. You cannot ever do it. The way to God must be lowered from above. God comes to us. We don't even want to come to him unless he gives us a heart to do it. He is the living God. And, And James describes him here, very importantly, as the maker of all things and the restorer of all things. Why, what do I, where do I get that? Because he's the one who made every good gift. Every good gift is from him. And we talked last week about this, good gift. What do you think of? Jewish readers would have thought immediately, good gifts. What are good gifts? They're everything God made. All the good gifts are from God. He looked at his creation when he finished it and said, it's very good. So every good gift is from above, from this father. But also every perfect gift. And perfect for James is an important word because the word perfect means stuff that has been made whole. Stuff that kind of needs to be put back together, and once it's put back together, it's whole. It's not fractured and falling apart anymore. Well, God is the, every good gift comes from him in creation, and every perfect gift comes from him as he makes all things well again, as he puts all things back together. That's the God we call Father. You think of a good thing under the sun, and there are so many good things. Sometimes they're good things that are just good in themselves. Sometimes they're good things because God has healed them. But no matter what you think about, any good thing in your life that you enjoy and you're glad for it and you want more of it, God is the author of it. He's the source of it. He's the designer of it. He's the healer of it. He's the savior of it. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 17, James talking about all these good gifts, he just starts tracing the sunbeams back up to the sun. And he just goes into some deep theology for a minute at the end of verse 17. And he reminds us of two things about God's goodness. The goodness, I mean, every good gift is from him. Every perfect gift is from him. But let's go right up to the sun. Let's go beyond the sunbeams. Just think about the goodness of God himself. He tells us a couple things about God's goodness. At the end of verse 17, he reminds us that God's goodness is perfect because he's the father of lights 
with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the source of every other good thing, and as the source of all goodness, he is purely good. He is inexhaustibly good. He is infinitely, perfectly good. Creatures derive their goodness. What do I mean by that? You get your goodness from somewhere. You know how I know that? Because you, didn't, you, you got your being from somewhere. Every one of you sitting here today, and, and I, I don't just mean you came from parents. I mean you did not give yourself existence. Even your parents didn't give you existence. They were the biological, you know, their, 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 their love was the kind of biological mechanism by which God brought you into existence. But you didn't choose to exist. You discovered you existed after you already existed. Not a single creature in this cosmos can make itself exist because you'd have to exist to make yourself exist, which is impossible. Every creature derives its very being from outside itself, which means every creature derives everything good about it from from outside itself. You guys are awesome. There's some tremendous things about every one of you. All of those good things are a gift. We all get whatever goodness we have from outside of ourselves. God's not like that. And I don't really know how to talk about this because I've never been God, and I don't really understand God, but God's goodness is not derived from anywhere. God is, he's he's unsourced. He doesn't have a source that gives him his being or gives him his goodness. God derives his life and blessedness and goodness and glory from within himself. Try figuring that out. And because God is the infinite source of his own goodness and blessedness and life and glory, nothing can add to his goodness. God never gets better. God never upgrades. God never improves. God doesn't need to. He is the infinity. He is boundless goodness and always has been and always will be. And nothing can ever diminish God's goodness. God doesn't lose a thing by giving everything away. God can give everything of himself and lose nothing because he's infinite. He has no, there are no limits to his being. That's what James is trying to get at when he says he's the father of lights. There's no variation. There is no shadow. He is, he never flickers. He never fades. He never dims. He is light without shadow from whom every creaturely light, no matter how luminous it might be, it has varying degrees of radiance, not God. He is pure light, pure goodness, even when he disciplines us, even when he just, you know, lays his, his, his rod upon you, that is, that is still pure goodness. And he never changes, as he was when he made the world, as he was when Jesus died on the cross, as he was the morning Jesus rose from the dead, as he was the moment he called you out of darkness into his light. He is that now. He will be that for eternity because he does not change. His goodness is perfect. But then in verse 18, James tells us something else about God's goodness. It's not just perfect goodness. It's powerful goodness. Because this Father of lights, every good gift, every perfect gift is from him. He himself is without variation or shadow. Notice the power of his goodness in verse 18. Of his own will, he just brought us forth by the word of truth. God is a good God who sovereignly fathers goodness. He can make goodness. He can beget it. He can create it out of nothing. He can bring it forth. He has that kind of power. You think back to creation. Before God even spoke creation into existence, he had already decided he was going to redeem creation after human beings made a mess of it. He had already decided before he said, let there be light, that he knew what was going to happen in this world. He knew human beings were going to sin. He knew we were going to rebel and bring ruin upon our world and upon ourselves. And he had already decreed that despite the rebellion of human beings, despite the rebellion of angels, he had decreed and purposed before time, I'm going to make everything new. 
I'm going to take a sinful world and I'm going to fill it with my glory. That is my purpose. Now, you've got to realize God's purpose in new creation, God's purpose in restoring things, beloved, is as powerful and unstoppable as that word that said, let there be light. God's power in bringing forth new creation, restored creation, his power is no less powerful than the power that brought forth first creation. Now, you guys just got to, you know, we're so little, we're so tiny. We live on this tiny little speck we call home, this planet. You know, sometimes for me, it helps just to think about what telescopes have showed us about the heavens. And you just try to imagine how God could say, let there be, and this entire cosmos just explodes into being. And this, this world in particular, this world that, so far as we know, is the only world in all of the cosmos that supports life like we know it here. And you just look around and you realize this world inexhaustibly blesses and feeds and, and, and nourishes billions, trillions of creatures every single moment of every single day. That God's power brought all that forth. That is the same power that has said, I'm going to make all things new. The same power that says, I'm going to put all things back together through my son, Jesus Christ. Every creature has its very being because God wills it to have being. Every creature has a certain destiny because God has willed that it will have that destiny and nothing can thwart God's purpose. You will be what God has determined you will be. You will arrive at the destiny God has determined for you because nothing can thwart his destiny. Nobody could stop God that day of creation and say, you know what, God, maybe not light, maybe something else. God spoke and it was done, the psalmist said. He decreed and it stands fast. God will make every creature what he has willed it to be and nothing can stand opposed to him. He is not affected by opposition. He, is not, he has no rivals. He doesn't worry about elections. He's not going to be succeeded. He's not going to be supplanted. He is sovereign. He is powerful. His will will be done. And James is just full of this as he writes. That's your father. That's your father. He brought you forth. He made you a part of his new creation. That's the goodness of your father. And all that deep theology, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just churning under the surface of this letter. It's very practical stuff. Because when you know that God, when you know that Father, it starts to change you. James has already told us some of the ways it changes us. You know, if you know that God is your Father, some of us are still working this out. I know I am. If you really know that God is your Father, you can have joy in trials. You know, you think about this. How else can you have joy in trials? Are you just a victim of stuff happening to, happening to you in your life? No, you know my life has real trials. My life has tremendous suffering. Some of you have been traumatized. Some of you are even right now going through just the fires really turned up under your life. But in that fire, you're looking around and you realize, I know the God who's in control of this. I know the God who's using this crucible. You can have joy. You can seek to endure rather than just escape everything all the time because you know this God is your father. It gives you confidence in prayer. You know, if that God is your father, man, praying is <laughs> praying's not hopeless. You, you can pray with like real confidence because God has said, you, you lack wisdom, you lack anything. Ask of God, he'll give it generously. This God that we just talked about is your father. You can go to him and pray realizing, first of all, God can do anything I ask him to do. And if he doesn't, it's because he knows better. So pray with confidence. It changes our social lives, verses nine through 11. It, it, it actually, knowing this God is your father creates real equality. Because you know, I know something about you. I know that what really matters about you is not all the stuff you're collecting. 
It's not all the status symbols you have in your life. It's not where you went to school, what you do for a job. It's not all the stuff that people, people look at you and think it's your, your big stuff. You know what really matters about you is that you are God's child. You are God's creature. And I relate to you on that basis. It's a leveling thing, knowing God. Because I suddenly realized what really matters about you is your relationship to him. And that just levels everything. And all these status symbols and these you know, hierarchies of status we have in our society, just, they just go by the board because what matters about you is that you matter to him. That's socially revolutionary. James has said more. It changes us in other ways. It frees us. It gives you some distance from your own desires. You know, most of us know what it's like, in some area of life at least, to just be in the grip of your desires. You know, you've probably heard, I don't know, Jonathan Haidt and others talk about the rider and the elephant. You know, you got the part of your brain, that tiny little rider in your brain that is rational. Then you got the big part of your brain that just reacts. And most of you know what it's like when that reactive part of you, the bigger part of your brain, just wants something and goes for it, and your mind catches up about, you know, 10 minutes later or 10 weeks later and says, what was I thinking? Well, that's, you know, the beautiful thing about knowing God as your father is you begin to have some distance from your desires and realize, you know what, I've discovered something about myself that's very freeing, and that is cause I, just because I want something, it might not be good for me. Because I know God, I know that. What I, really want, what I really want more and more is what God wants for me. Maybe not everything I just impulsively feel like I want. And James talked about that earlier in this chapter, and today he says there's more change that comes in knowing this God as father I'm going to use a strange word in verse 19. When you know this God is your father, it enables you to begin to take dominion. I'm going to use that word, dominion, over your body and over your soul. I want to move now from creation, verses 16 through 18, fatherly creation and all that that means. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. And now I want in verse 19 through 21 to think about God's commission. God's commission, our father's commission to us. Because when God made people in the beginning, he commissioned them to take dominion in his world. And I want you to notice, if you would, that, that opening little phrase in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Now that echoes verse 16. Look at your text, because this is one of the places you've got to kind of see what I'm talking about in the text. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers. It's an echo of verse 16, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, remember the flow of thought. In verses 14 and 15, just, James has just said, and there's an echo of Adam and Eve, your desire will lead you to sin. Your sin will kill you. That's Genesis 3. That's Adam and Eve. That's the fruit. Oh, man, God said don't eat it, but it so looks so good for food. It looks so good to the eyes. It'll make us wise like God's, and they take it, and it brings forth sin, and it brings forth death. And James says don't be deceived the serpent's in your ear. When you have a desire that you want something that's not what God wants for you, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And then he talks about the Father, and then he says, know this, my beloved brothers. The answer to the deception of your desire is know your Father. He's been talking about that. And then notice how he pivots here. Knowing your Father. Okay, your, your desire is in your ear. It's trying to pull you to sin and it'll lead you to death. Know your Father. Don't be deceived. Know your father and knowing your father and knowing, verse 18, how he gave you life by his word. That desire will give you death. 
God gave you life by speaking into your life who he is and what he wants for you. And he gave you life and gave you faith to believe that and respond to that. And he made you alive to him instead of running after your desires. Know that. He's been talking about that in verse 18. And then he pivots and he tells us what that means practically. Know this, my beloved brothers, and here's what you do with it. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Knowing your father, just drown out the desire for a minute, knowing your father, knowing how he gave you life by his truth, life by his word. Now, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you now to go live the way human beings were created to live. And if you look at the three things he says there, isn't this what human beings were made to do? They were to be swift to hear. Oh, that Adam and Eve had been swift to hear. God had spoken. Would God, they had just been, they had been eager to hear. And then they could have ruled their body. They could have ruled their, you know, quick to hear. Slow to speak means you've got control of your body. That thing in your mouth that just wants to burst forth and say stuff, you've got that bridled. We'll hear about that more in a bit. You've got your tongue bridled. You've got your body bridled. And notice, it's not just your body that you've got bridled. You've got your wrath, your passions, all that stuff inside of you that boils up, slow to wrath. That's, that's dominion. Because what I'm trying to get at here, you know, is, is basically this. There's this major theme in this first chapter of James. He's, he's talking about the reversal of the fall, the reversal of the fall of human beings in this thing he calls God's creation, God's new creation. So God had this life he intended for Adam, which was to worship God and rule his world. And later on, when Adam fell, God wanted that, to be, that life to be restored in Israel. Israel, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, rule the land of Canaan. Well, and then Israel rebelled. And so now, the idea in James and throughout the New Testament is that everything God planned for Adam, this whole, like, humanity, this hum- humanism, this human life God planned for Adam that was to be restored in Israel, is now being fulfilled in Jesus and his people. The 12 tribes, he calls them in verse 1. The the true Israel of God. Everything God planned for Adam, he failed by rebelling. Israel failed by rebelling. But you're not going to fail. You're going to be God's Israel and do what God planned for for, for Adam and for Israel in the Old Testament. And basically what he's describing here is God is restoring the dominion that Adam lost. Because you're going to live under the word. Adam lost his dominion by refusing to live under the word. He followed his desire to death. But you're not like that. You're going to listen to the word of your father. And God's going to give you back the whole thing he planned for Adam because you're listening to the word of your father. You're going to live under the word of God. And then you're going to learn how to rule. Because you listen to God, you'll be able to rule the way Adam didn't. You'll be able to rule the way Israel didn't. You know what the first thing God's going to cause you to rule? The very hardest thing of all to rule. See, I want God to put me in charge of a lot of stuff. I want God to let me run his, I want God to let me rule. I love being in charge. And God says, you know the first place I'm going to give you dominion? You're going to rule yourself. You want to see how Jesus gives the dominion back to his new humanity? You know you're with new humanity when they take dominion over their speech, 
and over their anger, over their bodies and over their passions. That's the new Adam. That's the new Israel. These are deceptively simple words. They are full of these echoes of Genesis. This is some deep change. This is some deep restoration going on here. When you are swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, God's plan for humanity is being restored. Notice a few things here. There's a prompt to this change in verse 21, the first part of verse 21. Therefore, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's the prompt to change. There are things that don't fit you anymore. You are not old humanity. You're new humanity. You're not in old father Adam. You're the creation of the father. A while back, I sent you guys an article by a guy named Michael Kruger, and he said something kind of shocking. He said, Christians need to stop thinking of themselves as sinners. You're not sinners. You sin, but that's not who you are anymore. You are actually saints, all of you. To be in Christ means your basic identity is you're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint who, who sins. And shame on us when we sin because it doesn't fit our identity anymore. We're actually, we belong to God. We are God's children. We are not most basically sinners. We are basically saints. We are holy ones. We are the Lord's. And James is building on that here in verse 21 when he says, some things just don't fit who you are anymore, beloved. They're not who you are. You're God's new creation. You're God's new Israel. You're his 12 tribes. And things that bring death just don't fit anymore where God is bringing life. You know, speech that kills. Wrath. Jesus said wrath is like murder. That stuff doesn't fit in your life anymore because you are the children of the father of life. It's kind of like when I became a dad. How many things that used to make perfect sense when Ben Miller was unmarried and didn't have kids, all of a sudden I realized those things just didn't fit in my life anymore at all. It was right down to the way I drove. I'll never forget the first time, because I'm, I'm kind of a wild driver, and I love you know, seeing if I can beat the oncoming car on a left turn. I'll never forget the first time I went to beat the car on a left turn, I realized I have kids in the back and a wife sitting next to me, and I'm not going to beat the car. I'm going to sit here and wait, because that way of driving doesn't fit who I am now. My identity is a father. I can't speak in certain ways anymore. I can't act in certain ways anymore. I'm a married man now. That means certain things are just out of bounds. I have boundaries in my life now. That stuff doesn't fit me anymore. It's not who I am anymore. I have a new identity. That's the prompt to change. This is who you are. You're not that anymore. You're now this. Put away all that filthiness. Take off those filthy clothes. Take off that rampant wickedness. Picture evils like this. You know the hydra in Greek mythology? Every time you chopped off a head, two more heads grew. Rampant wickedness. It's easy. It comes fast. It keeps growing. Chop off the heads, man. Put it away. All that evil that just, it's so easy and it grows so quickly. The whole letter of James is about two ways of life. The way of life from from, from above and the way of life from below. You know, Satan, that old serpent, he came along and he got Adam and Eve to follow this way of life from below. Desire from below. We'll have the good life. We'll choose it. We'll, you know, we'll construct it for ourselves. We'll achieve it for ourselves. And James says that whole life from below, it brings death. There's a, there's a way of life from above. That's your life now. Take off all this stuff from below. That's the prompt. But thank God that's not all there is. Because we can take a lot of prompting, but where's the power? Where's the power to change? There's the prompt, but where's the power? Well, the power 
Take off all this filthiness. Take off all that rampant wickedness, all that stuff that's life away from God. How do you do it? What's the power to do that? Well, you do that by receiving humbly what? What's it say? The word of God. The word of the Lord. You receive humbly the implanted word, that very word that brought you forth into life, that word that birthed you. You know, the Holy Spirit, he gets a hold of your heart. He plants what we call the gospel in your heart. What does that mean? I mean, he doesn't literally come down and, you know, you don't have literal soil in your heart and he kind of like digs a hole and puts, you know, the roots in. What it means is the, the Holy Spirit does something in a human heart we can't do for ourselves. You'll hear, one day, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and Savior, and that you can be children of God through him, and you believe it. You know why you believe it? Because the Holy Spirit planted it. He let it get roots in you. And you suddenly find there's an amen in your heart. And there's a very interesting moment in the book of Acts where Peter says about the Gentiles, he says, God purified their hearts by faith. God cleansed their hearts by faith. He washed their hearts clean by giving them faith in Jesus. But it's interesting that James says here to people who are Christians, this isn't the initial planting of the word, it's already implanted. But you've got to keep receiving the word that's implanted, beloved. This is why you keep coming every Sunday to listen you know, to me and other preachers of the gospel, and we keep doing this thing every week of just reminding ourselves of the truth. Yes, the word's been planted in you. I mean, I trust you guys are real believers in Jesus today, but you need to receive the very word that's been planted. We need to receive what we have been given. We need to hear again. Be quick to hear. Be eager to hear. Because you've got to keep receiving what you have heard. You have to keep exercising the faith you've been given. You've got to act to take more of what God has, is speaking, even though you already believe it. Why? Why is this pretty urgent? Because every single day of your life, gosh, now more than ever, you're probably the most bombarded generation of Christians in the history of the human race. Every single day of your lives, you've got voices and you've got images flashing in front of you, and these voices and images, they've got a message, they've got a gospel, and they're telling you all the time, this is what's good. This is what's possible. This is what's good. This is what's possible. And if you're not going to be culturally captive to all that, because you can't get away from it unless, I don't know, you live in, I don't know, North Dakota on a, you know, in a, in a, in a cabin in the woods someplace, you know, with no internet. You, unless, you're going to be, you are, this stuff's bombarding you. It is getting into your head. And if you're not going to be captivated by all of that, you've got to let the word of God wash over you a lot. Can I just say something to you young, younger ones? By the way, most of you are not going to find that the older ones are any good at this. I'll be honest. Most of the older saints that I know are not good examples of this at all. Y'all need to be in the Word. The fact that your parents don't read the Bible, don't let that deter you. I'm serious. The fact that you don't have family worship going on in your home, and honestly, your mom and dad are just lazy about the fact they will not get you together at the altar and, and worship. Some of you do, I know. But the reality is most of us in our generation, we're not really, we're not in the Word. I can't believe how Christians don't know their Bibles. Of all times in history, not to know our Bibles, and now we don't know our Bibles. It, it ought to embarrass us. You younger ones, set the, set the pace. Be in the Word. Get up 20 minutes earlier. Be in the Word. You don't know your Bible? How are you going to stand against the lies of the evil one if you don't know the word of God? I mean, listen, I grew up in a home. I know devotions can be a drag. I, I get it. I, I, my parents burned me out. You know, they would say this. 
with, you know, so, but you have got to know the word of God because that's, that, is, that is what inoculates you against the constant voices that tell you, no, that's what's good, that's what's possible, that's what's normal. No, let this wash, the word of God wash over you and it will heal your imagination. It'll restore you to a place of humility and security, identity, purpose, mission, calling. I love the way Kevin Van Hooser describes this in his book, Hearers and Doers. Listen to what he says. He says, the church must pit her gospel imagination against every counterfeit. To see the world and myself with gospel imagination is not to live in fantasy land, but in the only real world there is. The world created by God's word. (laughs) The world into which God's word has entered and will return. Now listen to this. He says, the ten plagues of Egypt played this role in the minds of the ancient Israelites. Those plagues freed the imagination of the Israelites from thinking that the power of Egypt was sovereign. I love that. You know how we need to read the story of the Exodus to remind us that Pharaoh's not sovereign. Those plagues deconstructed Pharaoh's claim to power. (laughs) There are a few powers in our time we need to have their claim to power deconstructed by the gospel. Just saying. It takes imagination to see that what God is doing with a small tribe of slaves is greater than the might of Egypt. Or that what God is doing in the early church is greater than the grandeur that is Rome. That's gospel imagination. That's the power that changes us. Now notice, we've been prompted by our identity. This is not who you are anymore. We're empowered by hearing our Father's word, this implanted word. Now notice in verse 19, then we're finally back to this. Notice then the royal life of children of God that follows in verse 19. And here we have the process of change. We looked at the prompt and the power, now the process of change. And basically it's very simple. The more eagerly you hear the word of God, the more eagerly you hear the word of God, you are quick to hear, the more you find that it's not just good, it is possible, exclamation point, it is possible to bridle your tongue and your passions. To bridle your tongue, and James is going to say in chapter 3, if anyone can bridle the tongue, remember what he says? You can bridle the whole body. You get your tongue under control, you can, you can rule your sex organs, you can rule your hands, you can rule your feet, you can rule your eyes, you get your tongue under control, you get that in a harness, you can rule your entire body. And the gospel tells us that as you hear the word of your father, you are quick to hear, you will become slow to speak. You will have a bridle on your tongue and your whole body, but it's even more glorious. As you learn to rule your body, you'll discover it is also good and possible to rule even your passions that seem like they are erupting before you even have time to realize it's happening. God's word as it washes over you and you are quick to hear it, it'll slow your body down. Knowing that God, knowing that gospel, seeing the world through that lens of what God, who God is and what God is doing, it will slow your body down. It will enable you to stop reacting with your body in certain ways. And in slowing your body down, it'll begin to help you regulate your emotional life. You'll begin to have new habits with your body and they will, will reform your passions. You will get to a place where you will actually ignite slowly. You are aroused slowly. There'll begin to be this running dialogue in your head. Does what I'm about to say, 
does all this tempestuous emotion inside of me right now, does it show any awareness that God reigns? Does all this fire inside of me right now and these words I'm about to blurt out, does this show any awareness that God is good? That God is gracious? Am I acting right now like God's plan is unfolding? Am I about to speak like God's promises are true? Am I erupting like a child of God? Is this thing my, the members of my body are about to do, is that reflective of the fact that I'm God's steward? Do these words, do these actions, do these habits, do these emotions, do these passions right now, do they reflect the reality that I can defeat sin? Why? Because Jesus defeated it. I can walk away from this screen. I can close my mouth. I can withdraw my hand. I can slow my feet. I can be cool right now because Jesus defeated sin. And it's not just what I can do against sin within me. I can right now, as I'm listening to the word, it will begin to slowly dawn on me at a level that affects my body and my emotions. I am able, by the power of Jesus in this situation, to overcome evil with good. Yes, I can. That's what's good. That's what's possible. I can produce the righteousness God requires. I think one of the major reasons Christians do not repent of their sin is they don't think they're able to. I think a major reason why there's not, there's not much more sanctification, that's the, the theological term, it just means growing in likeness to Jesus. The reason why a lot of that doesn't happen, sometimes because of just you know, really ugly sins, sometimes because of just typical North American apathy. You know why I think a lot of like serious holiness doesn't happen, like really like fiery love for God and love for our neighbors? I think it's because we don't think it's possible. I think most of us look at Jesus and think, no way I could be like him. We look at like, you know, the super Christians are like, no way I could be like them. We don't realize the, the measure of your ability to grow in likeness to Jesus is Jesus in you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself quickening your mortal body. That's the measure of what you can do. You hear the word, that implanted word. It'll make you slow to speak, slow to wrath. This is what our society is missing. I said last week, I think it was, we're a society with no father, no word to listen to except our own, no authoritative word. And that's why there's no reason why things should not just descend into more and more of a hellish war of words and war of passions because we're not eager to hear. I'm not saying anything other, and James is really not saying other than what Paul says in Romans 6, and I'm really almost done. Listen to Paul now in light of what James says. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin shall not rule our mortal bodies. Rather, by the grace of Jesus Christ, we will rule sin 
we will take dominion over our mortal bodies, not as tyrants, and I'm going to close with this. We're going to talk much more about this in the future. Not as tyrants, the dominion of the last Adam and his people. It's not tyrannical dominion. It's the dominion that Adam was to have, the dominion of a gardener. Matthew Lapine says something just so beautiful about the way we take dominion over our bodies, beginning with our tongues. Human beings have a moral responsibility to listen to the word of God, quick to hear, as a matter of husbanding, that is, tilling and cultivating our bodies to flourish in communion with God in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are God's under gardeners. That responsibility runs from Eden to the eschaton, to the end of history, as we await, notice what Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. We possess the relationship of a gardener to our bodies. You till the tongue. You till your sexual desires. You till the works of your hands. You till the impulses of your feet. Our bodies are simply one sphere of our political rule over all creation under the curse. We must treat our bodies with the same sort of creational care that our Father does. That's holiness. You build new habits with your body, and in time, as we'll see throughout the remainder of this letter, you will even be able to genuinely rule the most instinctive passions of your being. That's the dominion of the last Adam. Amen. And grant us, Lord, skill in that dominion. In Jesus' good name we pray.